Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. November 2017, and I'm accompanying the now former President Barack Obama to Shanghai, China. Former President Barack Obama will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping, according to a reporter with the... He's giving speeches, meeting privately with leaders. I have very little to do. It's a lot less stressful than when we were actually in government. Then one night at 10 p.m., the phone wakes me up in my hotel room. It's the front desk. Someone from the Chinese foreign ministry wants to talk to me. Now. I quickly tidy up, and a few minutes later, two Chinese officials are sitting awkwardly in my room. Only one of them speaks, a senior diplomat. For a few minutes, he makes a diplomatic small talk I'd grown accustomed to, praising the past cooperation between President Obama and President Xi Jinping. And just as I'm wondering why he's here, he gets to the point. Is President Obama traveling to Delhi next, he asks. Yes, I say. He says it's his understanding that President Obama is considering meeting in Delhi with the leader of the Tibetan opposition in exile. That's how China's government refers to the Dalai Lama. To them, he's a kind of Tibetan terrorist. The official very carefully explains that Obama should not meet with the Dalai Lama. He says if he does, the Chinese people will be greatly offended, including Xi Jinping. The whole time this diplomat's talking, the other guy just sits and watches him, silently. From my years in government, I'm used to getting this kind of message. I patiently say that we appreciate the request, but President Obama will meet with whomever he wants. And with that, the meeting is over. Here's why I'm telling you this story. We had not announced the meeting with the Dalai Lama. I'd only just been put in contact with his staff myself. What my visitors were doing, in no uncertain terms, was letting me know. The Chinese government was monitoring my conversations. I'm Ben Rhodes, and this is Missing America. A look at the political afflictions spreading unchecked around the world in the absence of American leadership. Today, the Chinese model of authoritarianism, in which citizens give up their rights and submit to constant surveillance in exchange for a promise of safety and prosperity. We'll learn about just how totalitarian the Chinese system is becoming, how it may be spreading, and how we could be headed for a world order where it's all just business as usual. They want to change the standard. They want to change the rules and to lower the bar on what constitutes humane, decent, and stabilizing behavior in the international system. Then we'll learn why and how millions of people in Hong Kong have fought back. I don't know whether I will win or lose, but at least right before I die, I have to try and struggle and fight against it and how the United States should be inspired by them and help people like them, 
not by starting a new Cold War, but by living up to our own standards. The democratic example that America needs to be, or else. On this episode of Missing America. So you're probably not surprised to hear that China is not the most free and open society in the world. In fact, my generation's first memory of Chinese politics was 1989, when the communist government crushed pro-democracy protest in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. Good evening. We all knew it couldn't go on forever, but no one thought it would come to this. A brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. From Tiananmen Square, the sound of gunfire sounded like a battle, but it was one-sided. The Chinese Red Cross says at least 2,600 people were killed. The students claim thousands of others were wounded. There has been but that was 30 years ago, right? Since then, China's gone through an historic economic expansion. Hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. The country opened up to Western businesses, culture, and tourists. And there hasn't been another violent military crackdown on the scale of Tiananmen. From the outside, China seems at least a little freer. Sad to say, it isn't. We just can't see the shackles as easily. Jeff Prescott was a member of the National Security Council under Obama. He lived in China for years. He says that when Xi Jinping took power, an already restrictive country got worse. Xi's government was determined to crush dissent, but with an evolution of tactics, from the brute in-your-face force of the Tiananmen era to less visible weapons, like technology. You know, China has had closed-circuit televisions for a long time. If you became a political dissident in China, someone would come to your street corner and put up a bunch of cameras so they can monitor your house in real time. What's new is that they've combined that with all of the computing power that the modern information apparatus provides. So you probably know China's on the cutting edge of tech innovation, surpassing the U.S. in artificial intelligence, high-speed 5G wireless networks, and more. Well, the government invested in that tech not just to sell it, but also to use it, to spy on its own citizens, with an efficiency and a scope that's never been seen before. So you can have all of your personal data online, the government can monitor that in real time. And when you add new technologies like facial recognition, like real-time artificial intelligence-based tracking of, of different data sets, they can essentially track a person in real time across a city, across the country. They can also track your movements across the internet. Like, for instance, if you download a Muslim sermon and you happen to be a Uyghur, Uyghurs are a predominantly Muslim ethnic group in Western China. More than one million have been put in Chinese concentration camps. The government says it's to fight extremism. But most of these Uyghurs have never been charged with a crime. What we're seeing now with these vast re-education camps and, and concentration camps in Xinjiang is people being identified for suspicious behavior like their online activity, like the use of their phone, the kind of apps that they're using, the, the internet searches that they're doing, feeding into this kind of surveillance database so they can then be picked up off the street and sent away for some kind of re-education or punishment. And if that isn't Orwellian enough for you, the Chinese government is scaling up its surveillance capabilities across the country for a project it calls a social credit system. Which is not really fully operational at this point, but you just imagine 
your kind of credit report, you know, every transaction that you've made, your banking history. You know, banks use that in our country to figure out whether they should give you a loan, whether you're a safe bet financially. China's trying to use that to kind of evaluate a citizen by, you know, how patriotic they are, how much they follow the rules, whether the emails and, and internet posts that they make are sufficiently um, laudatory of the Communist Party. There, there's a sort of pretty chilling way in which these technologies could be used to track people and score them over time. If you earn a high social credit score, maybe the government makes sure you get a decent job or your kid gets into a decent school. Get a low score? And maybe those opportunities dry up. Or worse, you get a knock on the door. There's an episode of the TV show Black Mirror about a society that does something similar. That's reserved for members of our prime flight program. You got to be a 4.2 or over to qualify. Oh, I'm, I'm a 4.2. <laughs> I'm afraid you're actually a 4.183. Well, you might say, that's just China for you, right? It's been a closed society for decades. That's their choice. Why should the rest of the world worry? Here's why. Increasingly, China is expanding its influence beyond its borders, including to a continent many Westerners don't pay much attention to, but really, really should. So my name is, I'm Sangu Dele from Ghana, and I am an entrepreneur, an early-stage tech investor, and an author. I met up with Sangu Dele last year in Johannesburg. He was about to publish a book of interviews conducted with people he'd met after visiting tech startups in every corner of Africa. You're seeing incredible innovation come out of all the different parts. I was in Rwanda the last time, and you're seeing incredible innovation come out of some of the tech entrepreneurs there that are building tech tools that are adapted to their local problems, right? And so I'm very optimistic about that side of things. Delhi's not the only one bullish in Africa. True, some African countries struggle with corrupt leaders, human rights abuses, and terrorism. But the continent is also home to some of the fastest growing economies on the planet. And the reason is Africa's young people. Look, in 2050, we're going to be one in four people will be African. And more importantly, 70% of the world's youth will be in Africa. The rest of the world will be aging. And, and, and so th to me, I see that as a real asset and a real opportunity if we do the right things and we, we have the, the right conducive environment to leverage that. Creating that environment will take investment and roads, infrastructure, wireless networks, bandwidth, education. Investments many African nations can't afford right now. But there's one country that's been more than willing to help out. Spoiler alert, it's not the United States. When the newly inaugurated President Trump unveiled his America First approach, it wasn't long before his budget team proposed deep cuts to foreign aid that would hit Africa the hardest. The president's stated goal in his inaugural address of America First uh, may instead mean America alone, and particularly in the context of Africa, may well mean America left behind. In fact, under Trump's isolationist, anti-immigrant vision, the United States has gone out of its way to alienate Africa and the young Africans who used to dream of studying and working in America. Using vulgar language, President Trump today questioned why the United States would allow people from Haiti and Africa into the country. He apparently said, this is a quote, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here? This all puzzles Sangu Delhi, especially given what it's led to. So to me, I think it's a huge missed opportunity. Um, that the U.S. is not focused on more sustained engagement with Africa. And what's interesting is, in, with that absence, guess who's filling that void? China. 
yeah. Right? Look, I've now spent time in 47 African countries. The 47th country I was in recently was Sao Tome and Principe. I mean, the island of Principe has only 8,000 people, and the Chinese are already there. By already there, Delhi means they're aggressively investing, providing development loans, technology, and sending in thousands of Chinese workers to build infrastructure across Africa. And all signs, literally, point to how huge an impact that this is already having. The way I best explained it to a friend the other time was I said I was driving on a street in Accra, and I saw a sign in Chinese. <laughs> and then I knew they've arrived. <laughs> like, right? When you start seeing signs in Chinese, you know they've arrived. All this investment isn't just China's way to get first crack at Africa's resources. It's not even limited to Africa. It's all part of an ambitious global plan that is also going to increase China's political leverage around the world. It's called the Belt Road Initiative. Jake Sullivan was Vice President Joe Biden's national security advisor. Very simply, what the Belt Road Initiative is, is an effort to build forms of infrastructure, ports, railroads, roads, airports. That's on the physical side. And then on on the digital side, basically building the internet backbone and the 5G backbone across all of Asia, all of Europe, all of Africa, and eventually around the world, all built to tie countries to Chinese influence in a variety of different ways. And then beyond that, they're trying to structure economic relationships with all of the major economies of the world outside of the United States, where those countries become increasingly dependent on China. And the multi-billion dollar question is, once that happens, once China has all that leverage, what are they going to do with it? For his part, Jake doesn't think the goal is to create little Chinas all over the world, the way the Soviet Union tried to export its brand of communism. In fact, he thinks the Belt Road Initiative is intended to shore up China's power at home. It is defensive in nature, in my view. It is not evangelizing. But it's so they can neutralize the capacity of any of those countries to put any pressure on China. Jake says once nations are financially beholden to China, they'll be more likely to look the other way when China, say, puts a million people in concentration camps. But in the process, I think it's also inevitable that other governments will become more like China's. Why? First of all, because of the technology that China's exporting along the Belt Road. The same tech they use to spy on their people at home. China's exerting influence as an enabler. Samantha Power has the same fear. She was America's ambassador to the UN under Obama. And here, I think that there is just a core fact, irrespective of what China's intentions are, whether it wants to make the world safe for authoritarianism or autocracy or not, the fact that it is introducing into the free market globally surveillance technologies, machine learning, AI tactics, I mean, these are now services and goods that are available with no strings attached to any government that seeks to do a deal with China. The Chinese government is extremely explicit about not being at all curious about how these tools are being used. And indeed, that is going to give those leaders who want to control dissent, who want to wipe out opposition, 
it is going to give them resources that they have not had at their disposal. There are plenty of those kind of leaders in places like Africa or Asia or Latin America, or as we heard last week, Europe. Leaders happy to turn their nations into Chinese-style surveillance states. And maybe even more chilling, China isn't just winning over governments. It's also winning the hearts and minds of people. China is an example to voters, to governments of all regime types, that you can actually pull hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, you can fuel economic growth. At the same time, you violate civil and political rights. Uh, that is a powerful rebuttal to an argument that has undergirded U.S. diplomacy and U.S. rhetoric for a very long time, which is that democracy and economic prosperity go hand in hand. And that is exerting a powerful appeal for citizens who may be disillusioned with the returns that democracy has offered them in their lives. Don't believe people would willingly choose a promise of stability and economic security over democracy and human rights? Well, people around the world are willing to consider it. I think what you're finding increasingly in Africa is that citizens are demanding performance. Fred Swanaker is another entrepreneur from Ghana, and he works with young people all across Africa, the continent's future leaders. One can argue with China and say, well, China is not democratic and so forth. But again, when you look at the results and, you know, hundreds of millions of people brought out of poverty in a very short period of time. One must say, well, okay, how can we learn from the way that has happened? And, you know, when you look at many of the countries that we look at today as role models of development, like Singapore and so forth, they didn't necessarily have democratic governments, but they had effective governments. Technology entrepreneur and activist Paul Duan understands that mindset too. He runs an NGO called Bayes Impact that uses tech to solve social problems. He also happens to be the French-born son of Chinese immigrants. We talk a lot about China's use of AI for, for surveillance, or even we talk about the, the social credit system in China that, that is very, in many ways, Black Mirror-esque. Feels a dystopian, um, yeah. Right. But, you know, it's funny. I talk to a lot of people in China. In fact, I talk to my family, too. And I've talked to people who, who've been Western-educated. I've talked to people who've, who know about Tiananmen, and some of them will actually defend the social credit system. Which, which is mind-boggling, right? Because from our uh, Western armchairs, it's easy to think that this is impossible. But one thing they will tell you is, we know it's, it's, it's a trade-off in terms of, of uh, civil uh, liberties, but we also know what we're getting from it. Duan says they get a sense of actual physical safety. Because when the authorities monitor everyone's every move, it's way easier to stop crime. Because of that, we see the immediate advantage of having surveillance systems that help you find the, the, whoever stole your bike within hours. Yeah. Or you also have people who, they've lived through, through famine, they lived through hunger, they lived through cases where people died because they didn't have uh, the right resources. They will look at you with a straight face and like, well, how can you tell me about human rights when human life is not even viable? And so I'm fully willing to live in a society where uh, I will relinquish some of my, what you consider to be the most important rights. Samantha Power says there's an important way for democracies to combat that way of thinking. We are going to have to make a more powerful argument for our model. And part of that argument is going to have to be that the system and the respect for human rights deliver for our citizens. But at this very moment, let's face it. The United States under Trump 
is not making the most convincing argument that democracy is effective. Empty body bags dumped outside the Trump Hotel this evening, a morbid protest of the president's response to the coronavirus. A new CNN poll shows the majority of Americans now think the federal government has done a poor job in preventing coronavirus spread. The coronavirus pandemic exposed all the weaknesses of the American system, all at once. A country wealthier than any on the planet that struggled for months to produce enough testing kits to even tell who's sick. A country with an ineffectual federal government that left states to fend for themselves. A country of massive inequality, where the poorer and browner you are, the more likely you are to die of COVID-19. A country with more deaths from that disease than anywhere else on Earth. The CDC is now projecting the U.S. could see up to 200,000 total deaths in a matter of weeks. We're still averaging more than 1,000 lives lost every day to this virus. As for China, its authoritarian system made it easy to lock down huge parts of the country and quickly scale up testing and tracking. China has reported fewer deaths than many Western democracies, despite a population that dwarfs all of them. And China's gone out of its way to publicize its cooperation with the World Health Organization and donations of masks and ventilators to other countries. If you're watching all this from Africa, with Chinese money building your country a high-speed rail system, and the American president literally calling your country a shithole, which system might you choose? So what happens in a world where citizens want Chinese-style prosperity and leaders want Chinese-style control? you get a world order that looks more like the Chinese Communist Party, especially when the American president tells the rest of the world that he could care less about them, that he's all about America first. Samantha Power says that as Trump has pulled away, China has capitalized. China is taking advantage of the vacuum left by the U.S. retreat from leadership at organizations like the U.N., and slowly they are inserting into various UN resolutions words that look warm and fuzzy as motherhood and apple pie. But all of that language is meant to chip away at the international human rights regime that has been built over the last three quarters of a century. Since World War II, power says it's been understood that whatever a country's laws may be, everyone has inherent rights that cannot be violated under penalty of international law. But... The language that Chinese diplomats insert is code for individuals have whatever rights or privileges the state decides that they have. I think that is the long game for China. They want to change the standard. They want to change the rules and to lower the bar on what constitutes humane, decent, and stabilizing behavior in the international system. And even if China's doing this mainly so its own government can do whatever it wants at home, it'll end up endangering everyone's rights. Everywhere. But they say the coronavirus is an equalizer. And in at least one way, maybe it is. Because as much as it exposed the failings of America's model, it also drew back the curtain on China's. One of the first Chinese doctors who tried to warn the world about a new coronavirus died on Friday from the illness. When Wuhan doctor Li Wenliang sounded the alarm about the outbreak online, the government was still trying to keep it a secret. So their first move was typical. They sent the cops to his home, forced him to publicly recant, and deleted his posts. But when he died of COVID, he became a martyr. 
News of his death drew 1.5 billion views on Chinese social media. The hashtag, we want freedom of speech, also started trending. The government deleted those posts too. But not before governments and citizens around the world saw them and started to think, maybe China's model isn't such a good bet after all. Maybe we don't want to live under the thumb of those guys any more than we want to live at the whim of Trump's tweets. So many countries are hedging right now and not wanting to alienate China, a country of such potency and leverage, but also fundamentally recognizing that nothing that China has said speaks to the aspirations of young people in their countries. And it is really important right now to bear in mind the opening that exists for the United States around the world. I mean, we have now in the last two years experienced more political protests in more places than at any point in modern recorded history. I mean, people are taking the fates of their countries, of their families, of future generations into their hands. People like these. protesters of Hong Kong. It's the one city in the world where people literally have the choice to opt into the Chinese model. And they're rejecting it. America should see their movement as both a warning and opportunity. To learn from them, and to be reminded of why certain values are worth standing up for, at home and around the world. The history of the Hong Kong protests and the future of America's resistance to authoritarianism. When Missing America continues... Missing America is brought to you by Babbel. I always wish that I could speak more languages. I've just finished taping a podcast all about how Americans need to listen more to people around the world. And that's a lot easier if you can talk to them in their own language. And there's no better time to start to learn a new language than right now. If you're looking to learn a new language, Babbel can help you become a fluent speaker much faster than you think. You see... Every time I try to learn a language, it never really sticks. So I decided to give Babbel a try, and I'm hooked. Babbel makes it fun and easy to start having conversations. For me, on Espanol, but you can do whatever your preferred language is. If you've been thinking about relearning that language that you took in high school or college, for me it was French, but it seems to have faded away. Well, Babbel can help you pick it up fast, and now is the time to do it. Whether it's time or effort or money, Babbel gets rid of all the roadblocks, so you can start speaking whatever language you want sooner. Babbel has proven to get you speaking a language within weeks. They design their courses with real-world conversations in mind, letting you learn everyday practical conversations that you'll actually use. The daily lessons are 10 to 15 minutes and start by teaching you words and phrases. Then, sentences get more complicated. Soon you're practicing short conversations. The lessons are thoughtfully created by over 100 language experts, and their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. They even have speech recognition technology that helps improve your pronunciation and accent. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. And Babbel is available as an app or online, so your progress will be synced across all your devices. Right now, When you purchase a three-month subscription, 
Babbel will give our listeners, that's you, three additional months for free with promo code MISSING. That's three additional months for free if you go to babbel.com and use promo code MISSING on your three-month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, promo code MISSING. Missing America is brought to you by Sunbasket. If you're looking for fresh dinners that taste great, that are good for you, and that take zero effort, Sunbasket delivers fresh and ready meals that are fast, fresh, and delicious. They can heat up in just a few minutes. If you want to skip the grocery store, which, let's face it, is a little anxiety-producing right now. If you want to eat delicious, healthy food without having to go out, Get Sunbasket fresh and ready meals delivered to you each week. Sunbasket delivers fresh and ready meals made with organic, fresh produce, sustainable seafood, and meats that are free of antibiotics, hormones, and steroids. Their chefs have won Michelin Awards and a James Beard Award. These people know what they're doing. So take the night off and let them cook for you. Their meals are amazing. Check them out on the Sunbasket website. Papardele, pasta with wilted spinach, sweet peas and fresh ricotta, southwestern turkey and sweet potato skillet, cauliflower macaroni and cheese, and much, much more. The meals come freshly prepared and heat up in as little as six minutes. They're ready to heat and eat, which means no mess in your kitchen. They have paleo, vegetarian, Mediterranean, and gluten-free options too. So last time I told you about Sunbasket, I told you about the butter chicken I had, which is excellent. Since then... I've tried the cauliflower stir-fry. This is an idea I've never had before. Instead of rice, they've got minced cauliflower with other veggies and ground pork and beef. I stir-fried it up, I heated it, the whole thing took me less than 20 minutes, and I had a delicious meal. Something that I've never had before. And really up my game in the kitchen. Right now, you can do that. Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go to sunbasket.com missing and enter promo code MISSING at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash missing, and enter promo code MISSING at checkout for $35 off your order. sunbasket.com slash missing, and enter promo code MISSING. For years, Chinese leaders have justified their authoritarian system by saying it's just better for China, that there's something about being Chinese that suggests a preference for centralized control. Yacha Wang is with Human Rights Watch. She was born in mainland China. The Chinese government has been promoting this narrative, you know, Chinese people are suitable for the Chinese uh, model. We don't get to have democracy, we don't get to have freedom, but we get to have economic development. But last year, the people of Hong Kong put the lie to that idea. Hong Kong, you know, they're ethnically Chinese, and those people are rising up because they want freedom, they want democracy. And that's why the story of Hong Kong's protest is so important, even though the Chinese government has cracked down hard. Because the protesters have already undermined the core argument of the Chinese Communist Party, that people, especially Chinese people, prefer stability to liberty. And the protests offer lessons for how citizens can stand up to even the most repressive regimes. The story began back in 1997. That year, the UK relinquished control of colonial Hong Kong. At the ceremony, Prince Charles watched the British flag come down and the Chinese flag go up. Now the city would be a 
special administrative region of China. The deal was, for 50 years, Hong Kong would be autonomous, with its own laws and its own democratic government. One country, two systems, was the slogan. Sen Yanning is a human rights lawyer in Hong Kong. She says people were hopeful. So that concept, one country, two systems, I do think that in that historical time, they were quite optimistic about it. People in Hong Kong, I think probably in the rest of the world as well, thought that China is opening up and they will accept Western liberal values, protection of rights, democratic systems, respect for the people. China, in other words, would become more like Hong Kong and not the other way around. And I think no one really saw this authoritarian system control coming until it really hit in recent years. When it did hit, it hit hard. After Xi Jinping became the leader of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, his government did not act like Hong Kong was going to remain autonomous for long. It pushed for so-called patriotic education in Hong Kong schools. It started turning local media into a CCP propaganda machine. And in 2014, the CCP insisted that any political candidate running for Hong Kong's highest office had to be approved by China. So outraged students rose up and formed the Umbrella Movement, a sort of Hong Kong version of Occupy Wall Street. So this is no longer just students causing a bit of a hassle. This is people joining them and taking over the whole city. They're blocking everything off in this whole financial district. The Umbrella Movement, it was one of the most important fights for democracy in Hong Kong. So it was the Occupy Movement for 78 days. But we achieved nothing from that. And um, that energy, it just died down. People lost hope after 2014. And in the past um, few years after the Umbrella Movement, people just went back to their lives. Um, They didn't care that much anymore. They felt too helpless. Apathy set in. Election turnout plunged. Hong Kong's pro-democracy party started losing elections. And the CCP started to assert itself more in Hong Kong life. And all of a sudden, this extradition bill came along. The extradition bill. It was introduced last year by Hong Kong politicians friendly to Beijing. It would have allowed Hong Kong citizens accused of crimes to be shipped off to stand trial in mainland China. And you can probably guess how fair the courts are in mainland China. So this created severe fear inside the hearts of the people, and especially the younger generation. They were thinking, this is my last fight. I have no future anyway. Hong Kong is going to become just like China. I don't know whether I will win or lose, but at least right before I die, I have to try and struggle and fight against it. So on June 9th, 2019, came public protests the likes of which the city had never seen before. Austin Ramsey was there. He's the Hong Kong bureau chief for the New York Times. You know, I'd covered many, many marches uh, in Hong Kong, sort of along that same route. But it was clear that this was very, very different. There's this this wide road for six lanes that was just completely filled with people moving very slowly. And I went with them 
to the government headquarters, which took a while. And then I sort of doubled back, got to the point where I had started about three hours after I, I'd last been there. And it was the same sort of size mass of people moving down the street, filling up all these lanes. And that was when it really hit home for me that, that this is just a huge number of people that it turned out. A million people, about 15% of Hong Kong's entire population. Three days later, another protest with even more people. Some of them clashed with the police. Among them was a student that we'll call John. He asked us to not use his real voice. In the early protests, the police were mainly using tear gas, but they fired a lot of tear gas. People are leaving the scene, but the police still tried to fire tear gas. And even they tried to fire rubber bullets and other forms of different kinds of bullets. And it's really, it's really ridiculous. Hong Kong is a peaceful city. They're not used to seeing violence, especially not from their own police. Soon, they weren't just protesting the bill. They were protesting the Chinese Communist Party. The root problem, the root cause of all of this mess, is not about the extradition bill or whatever. It's about the mistrust of the government or the CCP. It's about the tightening grasp of CCP on Hong Kong. It's about any government in Hong Kong prioritizing the CCP wishes or demands over Hong Kong's interests. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. And the protests were happening all over the city, all the time. Small, peaceful protests would appear out of nowhere in the middle of a workday. Hundreds of thousands of people flooded the streets on weekends. Meanwhile, students barricaded themselves in universities, where battles raged for days. You constantly hear tear gas firings. Boom, 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 boom. And you constantly hear people screaming. Screaming for help. Screaming for first aiders. Screaming for backups. It... It almost feels like a battleground. Even when they weren't, Austin Ramsey says there was a sense of resistance everywhere. The city was covered with images, with posters, with graffiti, just, you know, filling subway underpasses with just huge amounts of, of imagery and messages and slogans and things like that. There were songs and protest anthems that, that sprung out of this. So yeah, you can see, even when protests aren't happening, you can still see signs of it on the streets uh, every day. In October 2019, Hong Kong's leadership formally withdrew the extradition bill. In November, pro-democracy activists won overwhelming victories in local Hong Kong elections. But under the cover of the COVID pandemic, this summer, the Chinese Communist Party decided to change the laws anyway, as a new national security law was rammed through, which gives the government broad powers to crack down. The hard truth is that not every mass movement succeeds the first time, or even the second. 
But there's still much to learn from what did happen. How did Hong Kongers keep these protests going? What lessons can other movements draw from their experience? I talked to Senyan Ning last year as the protests rolled on. She said a key tactic, pretty simply, was flexibility. One of the failures of the Umbrella Movement was that during that 79-day movement, we had to stop our lives because we were protecting that occupied area. People had to stop working. They had to give up um, classes, jobs, and it just couldn't work. It was not sustainable. So, for example, nowadays, the working class, they go to work and then for lunchtime, they all gather, they go down, and during the lunchtime, they just have a spontaneous protest right in the middle of Central. And then they go back to their offices and work. And this is a continuous movement for weeks now. That tactic hints at one of the biggest reasons these protests continued. Everybody was welcome to contribute however they could, even if they didn't agree about everything. So what's successful this time is that we always remind ourselves and remind each other that, no, we're in this together. We cannot afford to split the working class. They have families to take care of. They can't afford to get arrested. So they will take a peaceful role. And the younger generation, maybe they feel that, I want to be more radical. So they will take what we call the frontline protesters role. We are all cooperating. We are not blaming each other. Don't segregate. Don't divide. The impact of their example has already rippled out beyond Hong Kong. You see, just as authoritarian governments learn from one another, so do citizens who resist them. Across Asia, democracy activists are already teaching Hong Kong tactics to local protesters. And last fall, the people of Taiwan deployed those tactics themselves. Typhoon rains weren't enough to extinguish the passion felt by the tens of thousands of protesters here. A few months later, the pro-independence leader, Tsai Ing-wen, won Taiwan's presidential election by a landslide. But in Hong Kong, protesters knew their movement faced long odds. Here's John, the student protester, speaking before China passed those laws this summer, meant to snuff out the protests. There are two possible futures for Hong Kong. The first way is the CCP continues to crack down on people's freedom, on these kinds of rallies and stuff. And actually, as normal citizens, we have no power. We don't have guns. We cannot have a civil war. So the inevitable end is we get controlled by the CCP and they swallow Hong Kong. And the second possible future is that maybe these kinds of foreign countries like the US that have shown an ability to negotiate with China help Hong Kong. If they see interest in Hong Kong and they're able to help Hong Kong, I think Hong Kong can still enjoy freedom of speech and a similar level of freedom compared to before. For now, it's clear the CCP is sticking with the first option, where they swallow up Hong Kong. So what should the U.S. do about it and about the challenge of authoritarianism more broadly? For pretty much any president, supporting these protests would have been a no-brainer. But as the protests grew, Trump remained silent. Last November, just to make it easy on Trump, Congress almost unanimously passed a bill mandating sanctions against China if it threatens Hong Kong's human rights. Would Trump sign it? Well, I'll tell you, look, we have to stand with Hong Kong, but I'm also standing with President Xi. He's a friend of mine. He's an incredible guy. Uh, We have to stand, but I'd like to see them work it out, okay? Trump did sign the bill, eventually. And more than six months later, after China passed its national security law, Trump imposed some sanctions. 
But not only was it too little too late, it ignored something that's more powerful than sanctions, America's own example. The world pays attention to what America does, much more so than they pay attention to what we say. And so the visual of an American military force clearing out peaceful protesters with pepper spray is absolutely devastating to our attempts to try to stand up for democracy abroad. That's Senator Chris Murphy, who notes that just as Trump was starting to speak up more about freedom in Hong Kong, he was undermining freedom in America. There was a journalist who surveyed a number of present and former Chinese leaders. And all off the record, they confirmed what we knew, that China's rooting for four more years of Donald Trump. And the reason that China's moving so fast to push into Hong Kong right now is because they worry the clock is ticking. And they know they can get away with things under President Trump that they likely can't get away with under a President Biden. So what would a real, effective U.S. strategy to combat authoritarianism look like? Step one, according to Samantha Power, demonstrate the power of democracy by doing something they can't do in China. Vote a corrupt leader out of office. To tell a story about how President Trump came along and really threatened the independent media, the independent judiciary, election integrity itself, and that those institutions bent over this four-year period, but did not break. The ultimate repudiation of this kind of systemic attack on democratic institutions that this corrupt, undemocratic uh, leader of the United States embodied. It'd be a first necessary move, but just a first step. We have a lot more work to do to make our democracy work better at home, so we can offer a better democratic example abroad. Step two? champion nations that reject corrupt leaders themselves and hold them up to the world as examples of their own. What a post-Trump U.S. foreign policy must do is it must have the back of those countries that have made the really hard choice to unseat a dictator as occurred in Armenia, Ethiopia, Sudan. Those are the kinds of modern reformist leaders who should get the early Oval Office meetings uh, with the next president of the United States. And step three, get back to doing what America used to do. Invest in people in places like Africa. Remember Fred Swanaker from Ghana? He can tell you what the payoff is. You know, I went to the U.S. on a scholarship. And so I left as an ambassador to the U.S. So much innovation that... Um, the U.S. has benefited from is because they've actually made it possible for the best brains to come and, and study there, uh, whether it's from India or China or even from Africa. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, more of them are having to look elsewhere because it's harder for them to get visas. Mm-hmm. And those are all future African leaders that could have been influenced by the U.S. And some of those people we welcome to America should be from Hong Kong. David Miliband was Britain's foreign secretary. I think we are confined not just to protest, but to actions that can try to protect individual Hong Kongers. If I was a Hong Konger looking just in the week that the details of the new law become clear or clearer, and all the dangers that are there for Hong Kongers who are thinking about protest or about saying anything, I think there is an important way in which the opportunity to seek a new life in a new country, it's right for that to be available. 
Britain's doors will be open to millions of Hong Kongers. So should America's. In other words, to combat the rise of China's political model, we don't need more nuclear weapons. We don't need a trade war. We need to take down Trump's barriers between us and the world. Reach out to people with programs that prove America's on their side as they work for a better life. Strengthen the rules that govern how nations act and unabashedly stand up for democratic values on the world stage. If we do, Jake Sullivan says, it's not just people around the world who will take note. China's government will too. China's also a practical country, where if they feel resistance and pushback and shaping around the rules and institutions and norms of the world, they'll adapt. And so I think the United States needs to take a mindset that this is not Cold War 2.0, but rather that we need to be deeply focused on building our own capacities, rallying the democracies of the world, developing a clear sense of what we're trying to lay down as the rules of the road in all these key areas, and then talking to China about terms of coexistence where we can each learn to live with one another as major powers and also solve the big problems that can't be solved without us working together, climate change being at the top of that list. I think that's all possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. Next week on Missing America, a virus that could keep us from executing this plan and that cries out for a new rulebook, disinformation. You may have heard about Russia's involvement, but how about Myanmar's? The internet had barely started taking off in Myanmar, and still there was this really powerful effect of social media just amplifying something that anybody could have posted. The damage disinformation can do and how America's uniquely positioned to fight it. That's next week. Missing America is written and hosted by me, Ben Rhodes. It's a production of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Rico Galliano is our story editor. Austin Fisher is our associate producer. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Ramirez. Production support and research from Nimi Uboroi and Sydney Rapp. Fact-checking by Justin Klosko. Original music by Marty Fowler. The executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Tanya Sominator. Special thanks to Emmanuel Jochi, Allison Falzetta, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and John Favreau. Thanks for listening. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.